If you guys have your Bibles, you can go ahead, prepare, and turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in the first verse. If you guys don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words will be on the screen so you guys can follow along with us. Uh, I will give you a little bit of context uh, as to where Pastor Phil left us off from last week. We ended with uh, Peter arriving at a house owned by Simon the Tanner, and he gave you a little bit of detail as to, in, uh, as to what a tanner's house is. Not a great place to be in, probably kind of stinky, uh, but this is where Peter's at, all right? And we pick up the story, not from Peter's perspective, but from a man named Cornelius. He is going to lead off the story today. This story is really, it serves almost as a bridge in my eyes between the end of Acts chapter 9 and the latter half of Acts chapter 10. But there's a lot of stuff that I can draw out of here. Uh, I hope you guys will hear me this morning. Um, and we're going to be looking at 33 verses today, which is a lot. Like, that is a lot of verses. So you guys better buckle down, all right? We are in for a roller coaster of a time here, all right? But I will, I will preface by saying I'll pause at a couple different sections throughout the scripture. I'm not going to dive into each individual verse for the sake of time, but I hope to add a little bit of insight and details uh, to our reading today. So let's start with Acts chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to be introduced to the first person in this story. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment, he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Now, we are introduced to the first person of the story. His name is Cornelius. There's a lot of different details that are brought out about Cornelius that you may have missed. Let's dive into a couple of them. First of all, we see that he is a centurion in the Italian regiments. That means that he has... Uh, some soldiers underneath his command, and he has some military authority, all right? That's important because that'll come into play later in the passage. Uh, but remember, he is a centurion. We also see that he is in Caesarea. Now, to give you a little context as to what Caesarea is, it's an up-and-coming city in the Roman Empire. There's some money going into this place. It's, it's in a good trade location. There's a lot of money going in and out, and uh, some people are really starting to invest in this town. So it's really up and coming, and it's a good place to live. And this is where we find Cornelius. But probably the most significant detail out of all of these is that we see that he is a God-fearing man, as well as his household. Now, this offers us some hints as to who he may be. Um, we see, if you guys have headers on your Bible, it may give the clue away that this is uh, a Gentile that we are talking about. Now, this is not something to be scared of. If you don't know what this is, let me just explain it to you really quickly. Basically, during this time, there were two groups of people. There were the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews, um, they received and practiced a lot of the logistical stuff of the, the Old Testament, per se, and the, um, and the Pentateuch, and they, they really honed in on the Jewish law, but they saw the Gentiles as outsiders, and they saw the Gentiles as separate from the Jews and that they couldn't, so much so that they didn't even engage with them to an extent. It was unheard of to see a Jew having a meal with a Gentile, being in their house, engaging with them socially was very rare. But Jesus did a lot of that. He did. And we're going to see some of Peter's boundaries start to break down here as we continue on. But we don't get direct confirmation that he's a Gentile here because of Luke's phrasing of the term. So 
in my eyes, as I did my word study on this, it was very intriguing that he would use the phrase God-fearing, and I think that this hints to the fact that he's a Gentile, because if Luke wanted to communicate that Cornelius was a Gentile, he wouldn't have claimed this man was just a God-fearing person. He would have added some kind of lingo saying that he was a Jew. But we do get a hint as to who Cornelius is. He's a God-fearing man. He witnesses to his family. They are pursuing God. We see that his household is also God-fearing. We also see that he gives to the community. He cares for the poor. These are all testaments that Luke decided to draw out of, and it's to clarify the next portion of Scripture. So let's continue on. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Now, a couple things here before we move on. Uh, There's a lot of details in here. Let me draw out two very specific ones for you. The first is the most obvious one in this section. It's that God acknowledged the offerings uh, or the lifestyle that Cornelius was living as an offering to the Lord. We see his care for the poor and his pursuit of God was noticed by God. And this is going to come into play in some of my contextual points later, but I'll just give you a little bit of a hint and a little bit of a disclaimer almost. God did not in any way have to acknowledge that what Cornelius was doing was blessable. He didn't have to acknowledge that. Cornelius was just doing what he thought God would have wanted him to do in the context he was in. By reaching out to people in need, by pursuing God, he was doing what he had to do or what God would have wanted him to do, which leaves him in a very interesting predicament. Since he is a God-fearing individual but a Gentile, he is pursuing God without the context of a true community because the community of Jews don't see the Gentiles as even with them. They see them as a step beneath them. And so he's here in this rough spot trying to hear about the the good news, trying to hear about the story of God without any support from the Jewish people. It's a very hard place to be in, but this is where Cornelius finds himself. And yet, despite his circumstances, he chooses to be a beacon in the community, to be God-fearing, to pursue God, even so to the point that his whole household notices it and decides to be God-fearing. It's a powerful powerful individual that we're dealing with in God's kingdom. And then the second thing that I would draw out for you guys uh, is actually the way that Cornelius decides to communicate uh, to Peter later in the passage. It mentions specifically that he sends two servants and a soldier. Now, why am I drawing this point out? Well, it's because he had a lot of options in front of him. He could have gone himself, but he's a centurion, so probably didn't want to leave his post unattended. He has soldiers underneath him, plenty of them. He could have sent 20, 30, 50, however many he wanted to, off to go communicate with Peter. But he probably thought to himself, if Peter sees 50 soldiers walk up to his door, 
How would he handle that? Probably not the greatest. Probably it would seem like a, a show of force almost if he sends 50 soldiers out to go get Peter. That's not the kind of message Cornelius wants to communicate. He could also just send servants instead. But chances are, along their journey, they'd probably run into a lot of trouble with the locals. And so instead, he decides to send a small company of two servants with an additional soldier, I believe, for protection, just to make sure the servants get to where they're going. But it also communicates that this is kind of a request to Peter, that he will come and hear what Cornelius has to share. And I think this is very wise by Cornelius because he recognizes within himself that he is a Gentile, and so he wouldn't want to try to command a Jew uh, to do anything more so he wants to request be kind and be open to receiving the word. Let's continue on here. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. And then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, he declared. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this portion of Scripture. Uh, let me draw out a couple things for you. Um, there is, oh, Peter, this is, this is just, he, he, his word choice here is very interesting uh, because I'll, I'll tell you in a second, but let me start by saying um, these, these foods were commonly considered unclean by the Jewish people because they weren't considered kosher. Uh, there is a certain level of preparation that has to go into certain foods, and even some foods are outlawed by the Jewish people, and so that's all of these foods that the Jews consider outlawed or unclean were being presented to Peter via vision, basically on this tablecloth for eating. And so God commands him to go out and kill and eat these foods, and naturally Peter's going to have an opposed response to this because he, he hasn't eaten these foods ever. He hasn't decided to ever be unclean, and he's been avoiding these foods his entire life because he thought they made him unclean. But his response to this is, shall we say questionable? Because it's a little bit of an oxymoron. I mean, if you can look at it on the screen. He literally says, no, Lord. Which, I don't know, in my eyes, I wouldn't want to tell God no, because he's God, and he could tell me what he needs to. And if he's going to command me to do something, who am I to say no to that? Like, this just seems a little bit nonsensical, if I could say. But I think Peter slowly realizes this um, because he's literally talking to God. And if you remember back in Peter's life, he has a history of denying Christ. I mean, he, we have the famous moment where the rooster crows after Peter denies Jesus three times. I mean, this is not something that's just an isolated event in Peter's life. He has a history of resisting God, but just the word choice he has there is just so questionable. It's, it's fine. I guess he didn't understand it. And yet I think so many times in our own life, we like to do the same thing. God gives us a direction. God gives us a plan. 
God gives us something to do or something he wants us to accomplish, and yet we say no, despite who God is in our life. Even if he's carried us through immeasurable challenges, like in Peter's life, we still say no to God. We still say no to the direction he's trying to lead us in. Even though it's a direct command from God, whether you receive it via scripture, via prayer, via a moment in worship, maybe it's a close friend, maybe it's a direct revelation from God. Sometimes I even find myself resisting the call of God. And I think the reason for that is because the situation I'm in right now is more comfortable than what God is calling me to. And I think we need to be okay being uncomfortable with being called out of our comfort zone. This is a struggle Peter currently has. And so let's continue on to see how he responds or how God responds in this section. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. That's probably the crux of this entire verse right there, uh, this entire passage, this one verse. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And that's the message that God really wants to get across to Peter. We'll dive more into that in a little bit, but let's continue on. I want to leave you on that cliffhanger there, okay? The same vision was repeated three times, then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over this vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down. I'm the man you are looking for. Why have you come? They said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day, he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. I find here that the response from the messengers is very intriguing because I think they recognize the divide. Obviously, they recognize the divide between the Gentile and the Jews, but I think they thought this was going to be a little bit of a problem for Peter to grow through because they recognize they are Gentiles and they recognize inviting a Jew into a Gentile's home is not a precedent that has been set elsewhere other than Jesus' life. And so asking Peter to do this is going to be really out of his comfort zone, and rightly so, unless God directly reveals to him that he shouldn't make people unclean. But I find the response very interesting here because it almost seems like these messengers are trying to offer proof or examples to Peter in a way to convince him that Peter should come to Cornelius' house. I mean, they really hype up Cornelius. They call him a God-fearing man. They say he's praying, he's devout, and he's respected by all of the Jews. That's some, that's some good language right there. That's some good attachments to have to your name. And I think these messengers are almost trying to convince Peter 
to go along with them. Little do they know that Peter has already received a direct revelation from God, and thankfully this time God doesn't have to tell him three times, and thankfully he just goes along with the plan smoothly. So that actually ended up working out. Let's continue on with the next section. They arrived in Caesarea the following day, and Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Now this, I'll stop right here. The next section gets a little interesting, but let's talk about right now. This is a great response from Peter. He acknowledges Cornelius. He says, hey, what's up? And then Cornelius tries to worship him. And Peter hasn't exactly... um, He's received this kind of feedback before where people try to worship him um, and he immediately points back to God and says, stand up, dude, this, you're not worshiping me. We both serve God. It's all right. I am a human being just like you. And he kind of levels the playing field here, which is really important. And he follows that by walking into Cornelius's house. So that kind of shows the acceptance of the environment. But this was huge for Peter to point this environment back to God. Very well done by Peter. I have to sing his praises here. Let's continue on with the next section. Peter told them, you know, it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me what you sent for me. Peter, what are you doing? Okay, let me, let me back up just a tad. That first section where Peter says, it's okay, stand up, let's, and then he walks into the house. That kind of feels like one of those phrases that he like said in the mirror to hype himself up before he got there. He's like, I can do this, I can do this. All you have to say, just this one line and you'll hit a home run. That's what that first section where he says, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. That's kind of the bathroom speech, all right? And he kills it. He absolutely nails that line. And then he just train wrecks the whole thing by bringing up the past, by bringing up the fact he used so much wrong lingo here. Just to point out a few things, mentioning that he shouldn't think of anyone as impure or unclean. If you just put two and two together, Cornelius could be like, oh, you clearly thought I was unclean. That's kind of rude. I don't know about you, but I definitely wouldn't want that to be my reputation as unclean. He literally sent, Cornelius literally sent these messengers that communicated he's God-fearing, he respects God, his whole household is pursuing God, he's in the community, and the Jewish people respect him, and Peter shows up and says, I thought Gentiles were unclean and you're a Gentile. I don't know why he decided to bring up the past. I don't. But I think a lot of times we do the same thing. I think a lot of times we have past experiences, we have moments that we've gone through, and they set the standard for the rest of our life because of things that happened. And because of awkward situations we've been, or because of turmoil and trouble we've been through, we shy away from opportunities or we fail. 
because of past expectations. And I think even more so from Peter's heart directly, this kind of gives us a window into what he's going through. Because Peter, he literally came fresh off of this vision from God saying, you are supposed to kill and eat these non-kosher animals. And then he throws in this, this last phrase saying, don't consider anything unclean that I have made clean. By this point, Peter has finally realized that God isn't just talking about food. He's talking about people. He's talking about everybody. And he puts two and two together himself and says, oh, the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross wasn't just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles too. And because of this little light bulb that goes off, he realizes that this is what God is setting up. He's setting up an opportunity for Peter to communicate the gospel to a completely unreached people group. Unfortunately, his flesh kind of comes out a little bit, and he's dealing with this elephant in the room, per se, that there's a Jew in a Gentile's home. Doesn't quite execute it so beautifully, but he makes it through. And it's largely because of Cornelius' next comments. So let's look at those, and then we'll wrap this up. Cornelius replied, Four days ago, I was praying in my house about this time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. Great response from Cornelius. Very mature, if I may add, uh, because he could have taken severe offense to Peter's comments. It wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. I'm sure Cornelius probably heard something along those lines before, but he decides to respond in a manner that is respectful to Peter, that respects the moment, and I think that's because he knows God is in this moment. He knows that God is setting this moment up because of the vision he had and because Cornelius arrived in his house. He knows God is about to do something and he's very excited to see it happen. And rightfully so. He's invested in this. He's brought his, his family and other people into this household to hear what Peter has to say. Unfortunately, he disrespected most of them right off the get-go, but he's got something to share and they're excited for it. So that's the end of the scripture. Let me offer you guys some uh, contextual points or some application I thought was really cool out of this passage. First point up here, Cornelius did a fantastic, unintentionally great job at preparing himself to be blessable. Cornelius went about his life trying to be a God-fearing man as much as possible. He did not make sacrifices expecting a response from God, and yet he did it because he believed God wanted him to do it. He believed that God wanted him to be a beacon in his community and a light to the people who were suffering. At the same time, he was also a devout believer in God, and even more so, his family followed along their path. Very, very incredible effort from Cornelius' part. But there was no expectation from him to receive a direct word of God. And he had no reason to believe he would receive one. 
God didn't allude to it. He didn't say, hey, in seven days, I'm going to send Peter to your house. He just plopped into Cornelius' life and said, hey, this is what's going to happen. I need you to go get Peter. So he does that. And he was, because of this, because of everything that he had gone through in his life, all the sacrifices and offerings that he made and uh, the effort that he went into building a relationship with God, God saw him as an opportunity to share the gospel with a group of people in need. And this precedent is not just set in this passage. We see some people who are very blessable, ready to be used by God in Scripture. One of the best examples I find is the story of Noah. If you remember, Noah, during his time, pretty much 99.9% of the earth was completely ungodly. And God was considering wiping out everything and completely restarting. But he saw Noah. He saw Noah and how much he feared God, how much he loved God, how much he pursued him. And because of that, God decided to use Noah in a season that was going to be very difficult for him because of the relationship that he had with Noah. There are also people in Scripture who are not ready from our eyes to be used by God. I'll give you a couple of examples. Moses had a massive calling on his life. Now, I know Moses, Moses, if you, if you were in Moses' spot, you would have been ready to go. You would have been like, let's go. Locked in. God, use me. But we're talking about Moses here in Exodus, all right? The story of Moses is one of a lot of turmoil and struggle. First off, God has a huge calling on his life but he ends up just seemingly ruining it, ruining it from his perspective by killing an Egyptian guard. And because of that, he runs away and hides for the better part of most of his young life. Then he encounters God at the burning bush. God gives him kind of a, a refire per se and a, re, a more of a desire to go out and pursue the calling he has on his life. And yet Moses is still questioning things. Moses is still doubting what he's supposed to be called to do, and he makes a lot of excuses in there. But God still used him. God still used him to lead his people away from persecution. Another example, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Gideon. He was used to do, claim a great victory for the people of Israel, but before any of that happened, he also had a lot of doubt, and he needed significant confidence from the Lord through several miraculous signs just in order to gain confidence to achieve what God had for him. So there's precedence on both sides in the Bible. In this instance, Cornelius has prepared himself to receive a blessing from God and to be used by God in whatever capacity God would have him. I wonder how our lives would change if we decided to live like Cornelius if we decided to be truly God-fearing individuals, if we really wanted to pursue God and reach people who were lost and reach people who were in need, I wonder how our lives would change because of that perspective. Maybe some of us are doing it already, but how can we be better at it? There's always room for growth. There's always room to get better. And I don't know what that's going to look like for you guys individually. Let me just throw a couple of examples out there. Maybe somebody in your family is lost. 
Maybe somebody in your family is struggling and they're in need. Have you reached out to them? Have you cared for them? Maybe somebody within, not just your extended family, but somebody in your very household is going through some tough times. How have you reached out to them? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe one of your friends is away from God. And you have the opportunity to speak into their life. Are you allowing God to use you in that? Are you allowing God to use your finances how he calls you to do that? I'm not here to ask donations for the church, but I am here to ask you to be blessable in your finances. Because God has called you to be a good steward of what he has given you to oversee. Not to own, to oversee. Because we know all things come from God. Are we being good stewards with not just the finances, but the opportunities that God has given us? Cornelius, by every indication, was ready to be used by God in an incredible way. Let's go to the second point. Peter's time of refinement was difficult, but prepared him for a pinnacle moment in communicating the gospel. We get several clues that Peter was struggling during his time, not just at Simon Tanner, Simon the Tanner's house, but on the way to Cornelius' house as well. I mean, I pointed out the one example where he literally tells God no out of whatever logic he was using. That indicates some struggle right there. If you're resisting the call that God has on your life, you are going through some turmoil. We also see with the awkward exchange at Cornelius' house at the very start that there's still some turmoil going on because he's wrestling with the fact that um, he's kind of laying down the standards that the Jewish laws have on his life. And he's engaging with Gentiles, which is a great thing, but it's a culture shock for him. He has to adjust, he has to grow, and he, he's still wrestling with some of this. And I think even more so out of this distress, Peter probably thought that he was justified in, in telling God no. He probably thought that he was right in saying God, no, I should not do this. That's why he told God no. You don't tell God no unless you feel like you're right. And he's clearly wrong. I mean, God's telling him to do something. Like, he's clearly wrong. But it takes wrestling from Peter's heart, from Peter's mind, and he has to grow through this, this change in order to be used by God. There's a lot of change that had to happen. And yet, sometimes I think we do the exact same thing. We resist change. We resist growth. Because God is calling us to grow and God is calling us to change in order to set us up for a pinnacle moment in communicating the gospel. But he needs something inside of us to break or to change in order to use us effectively. It takes a while for Peter to grow through this process, but he gets there. He gets to Cornelius' house. He gets over whatever elephant he's dealing with in his own life, and he's ready to communicate the gospel. We have the same opportunity as Peter. We just have to change a little bit. God might need to break something in your life, and guess what? That's not going to be comfortable. But the result of God's blessing is going to be so much better than if you left it on the table. 
So how do we need to change our lives? How do we need to grow? I think Peter's old way of doing things wasn't going to work with God how God wanted to use him. And if you want God to use you in your church, in your family, in your friend groups, in your social circles, you may need to break some things in your life. You may need to put some things at the altar. And you may need to leave those up to God. Say, God, I don't understand this. I've been living by these rules and these standards, these things that I've learned in the past. I've been living by these for a long time, but if you're telling me to lay them down, so be it. Provide me a pinnacle moment to spread the gospel. How do we need to grow? And I'm challenging you guys in this because I know that God has prepared pinnacle moments in your life. You just may need to redefine how God is going to use you. Peter had been used all the way up until this point to reach the Jewish population, and he was comfortable with that. But somebody needed to tell the Jews, I'm sorry, somebody needed to tell the Gentiles. Somebody needed to communicate the gospel to them. God was calling Peter to do that. And he needed, God needed Peter to grow out of the own standards that he had on his life. Let me introduce you to the last thing that I felt was really cool from this passage. It's that God set the stage for Peter. God sets the stage in this. At the very end of the passage, Cornelius, he reveals to Peter what he had seen. And it's awesome, great vision. Peter finally realizes it. But there's a lot of effort that went into preparing this moment. And God did a lot of the heavy lifting. Cornelius received this vision from God. He acted on it in obedience. Peter receives a vision from God for growth. And when Cornelius' people come to visit him, Peter acts in obedience. And he goes with those people. All Peter had to do was obey what God was telling him to do. God literally laid out the plan that he had. All Peter had to do was walk and make it to Cornelius' house. Yes, he had to deal with that internal turmoil, but he could have dealt with that very easily, easily if he just told God yes the first time. And we have opportunities to do the exact same thing. God has pinnacle moments for you. He has set the stage. All you have to do is obey. All you have to do is walk. He has opportunities. All we have to do is obey. And so because of this theme, I think there's a couple different mindsets that are in the room right now. The first of those being, you guys know you have the stage set in your life. You see the stage. You see the opportunity that God has for you to communicate the gospel to somebody. Whether it's a family member, a friend, a child, a sibling, an adult, you know who you're supposed to communicate the gospel to. Friends, God has prepared you already to do that. Peter was prepared in advance of the opportunity at Cornelius' house. God prepared him. God grew him. God broke down the barriers in his life, and he worked and struggled with Peter through that before Cornelius got to that point. If you guys see an opportunity in your life, God has given you every tool you need to communicate the gospel. 
God has given you every opportunity to meet that need in your community. He has. Whether or not you obey, that is the question. For the second group of people in here, maybe you guys don't have direct sight of the opportunity that God has given you. Maybe you don't know where the stage is. You're trying to figure it out. You're seeking. You're growing in God, but you don't know where the stage is. Well, let me give you a couple of pieces of advice. First of all, this church is a stage. I know I'm literally standing on a stage, but this church is on a platform, and it is a beacon of light into this community community to communicate to our people, hey, Jesus loves you. And if people walk into this door who don't know Jesus or are viewing online who don't know Jesus, you have an opportunity to share your story with them. This is not just our stage, literally. Everybody who walks in this door has an opportunity to hear the gospel and to have their life changed. And you guys are a part of that. Whether you're online with our other viewers or if you're sitting in this room right now, there are people around you who need to hear your story. And this is the opportunity that is in front of you. Another opportunity that you guys may have is something that you don't know about, but our pastors here can help you realize what that is. We can give you tips on how to figure that out. We can give you advice in your social circles and in your family, and we can help you figure out where God is calling you to, what stage he's calling you to. And if you don't know that, we are ready to help you. We want to help you because we want to see more people growing and being changed by God. But there's a third group of people, and I think you land where Peter is right now. The stage is set, and you see the stage. You know it's there, and it's for you. The microphone's set, the spotlight's right there. I know some of y'all are built for the stage. I know. I see it, all right? but you're scared or you don't want the opportunity because it's uncomfortable. This is where Peter's at. Peter has a very uncomfortable opportunity in front of him. We see that throughout this entire passage. And despite his own discomfort and his own angst against this opportunity, Peter is used by God. Despite his own battle, despite his own mind that's telling him this is very uncomfortable, I want to leave, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be in Cornelius' house, God, why did you call me to this? I think we say that a lot, that phrase, God, why did you call me to do this? This is where Peter's at. And despite that, we see that God has done all of the heavy lifting to get Peter to this point, to share the gospel. There are opportunities just like that, and I think there are people sitting in this room who have an opportunity in front of you. It's just uncomfortable. And if you feel that way, talk to God. Talk to him. Because that's what Peter did. And God spoke back. Three times, the same thing. And if you need God to grow you and change you, it may be uncomfortable. There may be things that have to break. But if you really want to see yourself used by God, you will be willing to be uncomfortable for his kingdom. I have to do that every single day. I have to be willing to be uncomfortable 
to pursue God. And I am asking you guys to do the same. Will you be willing to get uncomfortable for God no matter what it costs? And so those are the three stages that I think you guys may be at. There are opportunities, we just have to find them. Or God has to grow us into those opportunities. So let me end with this. I've talked a lot about the journey that Peter went on and Cornelius prepared for. We've seen the growth that's happened in Peter's life. We've seen Cornelius' great anticipation for this moment, and we've arrived. We're at this moment. Cornelius is ready to receive this word from Peter. Peter has realized his ignorance and put it down to the side and realized Cornelius is ready to receive the gospel. God has prepared this moment. He's manufactured it. Peter has arrived, and he's ready to communicate it. Cornelius is ready to hear it. People's lives are ready to be changed. There is one question left. What did he say? Well, my friends, you'll have to wait until next week to find out. Because that's what Pastor James is going to tackle for us next week, all right? Where's your team? You guys can come back up. We're going to close the service here. And as they do that, I, I have a challenge for you guys in this room. I know I've already challenged you guys probably 17,000 times, but let me add one more. There is one stage that is set in your life right now. There is an opportunity that you have to grow. Whether or not you accept it is up to you. So as we're going to go in the next two songs here, I want you guys to be open to growing. Be open to changing, whatever that looks like. To assist you in that, we're going to have our prayer team come up in just a little bit. But before they do that, I want to speak to the people in this room who the stage is set in their hearts to receive the gospel. Who know that now is an opportunity for me to chase after God. For me to start a relationship with God. Because you have to set that stage first. You have to step onto that stage first in order to see what God's calling you to. And so if you guys would, with every head bowed, and every eye closed. I'm just going to lead us in a very simple prayer. If you don't yet have a relationship with God, you can just repeat after me a very simple prayer. We're just talking to God in this moment. That's all we're doing. We're asking God to be the Lord of our life. And so if you'll pray this simple prayer, Jesus, I love you. I recognize that you died on the cross for my sins because of my wrongdoings. I pray that you will come into my life. I ask you, be the Lord of my life. Change me on the inside so that I may show it on the outside. Change me, make me new. And as you do that, I thank you for preparing opportunities for me, preparing this moment Help me to live the rest of my life changed. In your name I pray.